0: Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Article 215 Feeders. And so we might ask the question, what is a feeder? Article 100 defines feeders as all circuit conductors between the service equipment, the source of a separately derived system, or other power supply source, and the final branch circuit overcurrent device. Now that is absolutely correct as far as the definition is concerned, but it's a bit clunky. So first of all, let's start with what a feeder is not. It is not a branch circuit. And it is not part of service conductor. A branch circuit is from the last overcurrent device to the load, so last uh, circuit breaker or last fuse, to where we're actually using the power. And so a feeder is not that. A service conductor is the conductor that connects from the utility demarc to the first overcurrent device, our main breaker, main fuse set. And from that point, things are protected. So it's not anything that is ahead of that first overcurrent protection. It's really everything that's in between. A feeder is the stuff in between service conductors and branch circuits. Therefore, a feeder has overcurrent protection. But if you look downstream, you see more overcurrent devices. You're running to a subpanel or something like that. Feeders are used to distribute larger amounts of current to subpanels, and they aid in power distribution for larger buildings, or perhaps to separate buildings off of the same power source. There are a couple of other things that are considered feeders. For example, we might have a standby generator, and that circuit that comes from the outside standby generator to the inside disconnect is considered a feeder. Or we have a transformer that converts all of the electrical energy to a magnetic field and then back to electrical energy. In other words, it's separately derived. The secondaries of that transformer are considered feeders also. So in a nutshell, feeders give us an efficient but electrically protected means to distribute energy. If you have a feeder, the NEC gives us some tools that we could use that we can't use with service conductors or with branch circuit conductors. There are other code articles that really tie into this. One of them is Article 225. And it gives installation requirements for outside feeders and branch circuits. And also we have section 240.21b. So this is in the overcurrent section of the codebook. And here we've got feeder tap rules. But for today's podcast, we are focusing on the main article, article 215. And so when you find article 215 in the code book, you realize that, boy, it's a short article, just a few pages. How different from Article 210 branch circuits? And really, it makes sense when you look at all of the different things that branch circuits could cover. Feeders are just uh, very bare bones. Uh, There are ways to get large amounts of electricity distributed in an efficient way around a building. So 215.1 gives us the scope, and it's basically sizing the conductors and the overcurrent protection for feeders. And then 215.2 talks about the minimum rating. Now, the nice thing is generally the overcurrent protection and the conductor size, we use the same set of rules for feeders. So to determine the minimum feeder conductor size before applying any conductor adjustments or correction factors, we add two quantities. We look at the non-continuous load, and we take that at face value, 100%. And then continuous loads, those we figure at 125%. So what's a continuous load? Well, Article 100 defines it as something that would operate at three hours or more. And so are certain things that we automatically consider continuous loads. Uh, Perhaps the lighting system in a commercial building or the parking lot or signage. Perhaps it's a power conditioner. Well, that's on 24-7. So those are obviously continuous loads. Sometimes the code also says treat something as a continuous load. So those are things that we would consider here. Non-continuous loads, we could call them intermittent loads. So 100% of the non-continuous loads, 125% of the continuous loads. Now, if we have a lot of diversity, such as the feeder to a dwelling unit or many different kinds of loads, Article 220 gives us rules to be able to derate some of these loads. But the general uh, rule always applies, 100% of the non-continuous, 125% of the continuous load, if you're giving nothing else. So once we have the total load determined, we want to size the minimum conductor required to carry that load. And we simply go to our impacity tables. So our most common table that we use for that is table 310.15B16. In the 2020 code book, that's Table 310.16. I'll stick to the 2017 language for here. And generally, we can probably use the 75 degree column here. Quite often, our feeders are going to be larger than 100 amps, and even if they're not, most of our gear is going to be rated at least 75 degrees. Our breakers are rated 75 degrees, and typically we have a building wire that's 75 degrees or 90 degrees. So that's usually a safe assumption. But if nothing is given to you in the test question, remember that we've got some baselines in 110.14C. Those are our opacity adjustments for the lugs, the connections. If nothing is given to us, we have some defaults. 100 amps or less, 60 degrees, over 100 amps, 75 degrees. But like I said, most of our modern equipment, we're safe to say that we're good in the 75 degree column. and. That's what we're going to use for the rest of this podcast. We would also size our overcurrent protection based on the same ampacity. So the sizing of the conductor and the overcurrent protection uses the same rules. So I'm going to use a couple of sizing examples. I'll leave these in the show notes. And you can also find the same examples in uh, Mike Holt's Understanding the NEC series. So the first one is going to be this. What size feeder conductor would you need for 200-amp continuous load? And our terminals are rated 75 degrees C. All right, so 200-amp continuous load. Well, because it's a continuous load, we have to multiply it by 1.25, or 125%. So that would give us 200 times 1.25, that's 250 amps. And then we find our ampacity table, 75 degree column, copper conductor. A 250 kcmil conductor is suitable. 250 kcmil conductors have an ampere rating of 255 amps. So that gives us the right amount that we need. Now, when you take a look in this section, you find that oh, hey, there's an exception to the 125% rule. It states where the assembly and the overcurrent device are both listed for 100% continuous load operation. You can size the feeder conductors at 100% of the continuous load. Now do we ever have the chance to really use that? Very, very seldom. Generally you will not find any equipment rated under 400 amps that is suitable for 100% continuous loading. And so this is going to be larger gear and typically the way it's arranged that we'd be running from bus bar to bus bar. Uh, By the way, neutrals can be sized at 100% of the continuous load. They generally run bus bar to bus bar. Now, while permitted by the NEC, personally I'm a bit leery of doing so in Y-connected systems, and the reason is that we have the possibility of some larger harmonic loads that raise the heat profile on these connections. Now, the NEC requires that the feeder, grounded or neutral conductor, not be smaller than what is listed in table 250.122. And that table is based on the rating of the feeder overcurrent protective device, the size of the breaker or the size of the fuses. So with that in mind, here's the next question. What size grounded conductor or neutral do you need for a feeder consisting of 250 kcmil ungrounded conductors one grounded neutral conductor protected by a 250 amp overcurrent device and the unbalanced load that is the neutral load is 50 amps again we have 75 degree terminals now if you're looking at table 310.15b16 you see that, well, an 8-gauge conductor carries 50 amps. And 220.61, which is the neutral section of load calculations, would also permit that 8-gauge conductor to carry 50 amps of an unbalanced load. However, we have to remember that table 250.122 requires that the grounded or neutral conductor not not be any smaller than the table. So the table there gives us 4 gauge, based on the 250 amp breaker. Now why is that? If the conductor is already large enough for the maximum load that it needs to carry, why does 251.22 say it needs to be larger? Well, the 50 ampere load is the load under normal conditions. What if there is an abnormal condition? What if we have insulation failure and one of the hot feeder conductors comes into the contact with the neutral bus in the sub-panel? That 8-gauge wire might now be the fuse. In other words, our neutral wire has to be large enough to withstand the fault current of the feeder to be able to carry current back to the source transformer and hopefully provide enough current to draw and trip the breaker or fuse that's protecting that circuit. So the neutral can't ever be smaller than the equipment grounding conductor in case it has to fulfill a similar function. Now feeder conductors for individual dwelling units or mobile homes don't ever have to be larger than the service conductors that are sized according to 310.15B7. Those are the ones that we can downsize by one size between 100 and 400 amps. Now sometimes we might upsize a feeder. Why would we do that? Well, for the sake of efficiency and performance. Now, that's really an engineering consideration. If you look at 215.2A3, there's an informational note there that says, hey, it's a great idea to keep your voltage drop between feeder and branch circuit at no more than 5%, and individually feeder or individually branch circuit at 3% but it's an informational note. That means this is optional. We would do this as a design or engineering consideration, not as an NEC requirement. Next, we want to talk about high-leg identification. On a four-wire delta-connected three-phase system. So that's a three-phase system, comes off of a three-phase transformer bank. Typically, it's going to be 240 volts line to line To get a neutral, we take one of the phase conductors and we center tap it. And that means that on that one phase, we're able to get 120 volts to ground from one side of that phase and from the other side of that phase. So in that three-phase system, two of the HOTs will give us 120 volts to ground. The third one is the high leg. It will give us 208 volts to ground. You cannot use that high leg for a 120-volt breaker. So panel boards that are supplied that way by a four-wire, delta-connected three-phase system must have the high-leg conductor terminate on the B, or center phase, of the panel board. We find that particular rule in 408.3e. Now, this is not a new rule. It's been in the NEC since 1975. There's also an exception here. 408.3e permits the high leg conductor to terminate on C phase when the meter is located in the same section of the switchboard or panel board. And most utilities will require the high leg to be on C phase, on the right-hand side of the bus, inside of the metering cabinet. But everywhere else, it needs to be on the center bus. Now, this code wasn't always enforced rigorously. Uh, Just the other day, I had a gentleman call up, and he was working on a car wash, and he said, boy, it's, I've got some funny voltages here. And I think it's a 208 volt system. I'm looking at the panel. There's there's breakers, single pole breakers on B phase. So I don't think it's a high leg. And the voltage was off a little bit. It was, it was tapped a little bit low. But uh, come to find out that the entire system was with a high leg on C phase rather than on B phase. No color markings, no indication on the panel. And installed well after 1975. So if you're unsure always meter through. Meter through your phases and meter each phase down to ground and down to neutral and that way you know what you're playing with. So since 1975 the high leg has to be on the center bus center phase except in metering. Now to ensure that we can actually spot what the high leg is it must be durably and permanently marked with an orange outer finish. At each point a connection is made, and where the neutral conductor is also present. We find that rule in 110.15. We would also have to indicate on the panel board that there is a higher to, voltage, uh, higher to ground voltage present on B phase. We want to identify our colors in such a way that that becomes obvious. We'll talk uh, about colors here in just a little bit later on in the podcast. Next up, we have 215.10, and that deals with Ground Fault Protection of Equipment, or GFPE. Now, in the last couple of episodes, we talked at great length about GFCI, Ground Fault Circuit Interrupters. Those protect personnel. They're a Class A type protection, 5 milliamps plus or minus 1. GFPE protection doesn't really protect people, it protects equipment. And there we're looking at fault current levels that are uh, much in excess of 5 milliamps. Usually it's 30 milliamps above the background leakage current. So Article 100 tells us that ground fault protection of equipment systems interrupt power to protect equipment, but at much lower current levels than would normally be required to trip an overcurrent device in a normal ground fault, that is, a hot conductor touching the case. So then we have a requirement. And really, this requirement is there to detect insulation failure before it becomes a really severe problem, before it leaves a hole in the ground. So 215.10 says each solidly connected Y system that is a Y electrical system, 277, 480 volts. Feeder disconnecting means rated 1,000 amperes or more must be provided with ground fault protection of equipment. And then it gives us a couple of references there as well. Must comply with the installation that we have in 23095. So if ground fault protection is on the supply side of the feeder, then we don't need to have it on the load side as well. We have to remember that these are there to trip if the insulation starts to deteriorate, starts to fail, and we're trying to protect equipment here. Now, there's a couple places where we are not required to put it in, in 700.31 or 701.26. So that's for emergency systems or legally required standby systems for the feeders. We would still have to provide ground fault indication, so we'd have to be able to detect a ground fault and indicate, bells and whistles go off, that we have impending insulation failure, but because these are providing some needed services, we don't want to shut the system down just on the detection of a ground fault. One place where we never want to put ground fault protection is on fire pumps. 695.6G tell us that GFP protection must not be placed on fire pumps. In fact, we take most of the electrical protection away. We put a lot of physical protection on this wire because it really makes no sense to try to save the pump or the wiring to the pump if the rest of the building burns down around our ears. And so basically, we let the pump run. We try to give it the minimal amount of protection needed and we try to save the building but we would never put ground fault protection on the feeder for a fire pump. So how do we identify our conductors? Well, 215.12a talks about the neutral conductor, the grounded conductor of a feeder, and it says you follow the rules in 200.6. We discussed those in an earlier episode. The grounded conductor shall be marked either white or gray. It also talks about the equipment grounding conductor. The Equipment Grounding Conductor must be identified as per 250.119. Now, some of the literature says uh, just be careful here. If you're thinking about it as a grounding conductor, we call it the Equipment Grounding Conductor, but it performs two functions. It performs both bonding and grounding. It carries the Earth connection forward to wherever we're trying to use it at the end. But it also provides bonding between metallic objects. It's this low impedance path that helps us to open an overcurrent device in case of a ground fault. So that's the conductor we're talking about here. And you can already guess, oh, the color has to be either, well, it might be bare. So it's permitted to be bare or covered or insulated. If it's covered or insulated, size 6 gauge and smaller must have a continuous outer finish that is green or green with one or more yellow stripes. If it's larger than 6-gauge and insulated, it can be permanently re-identified with green marking tape or some other way of uh, identifying it as green. There's a whole list of things that we could do in 250.119A. Now, how about the hot conductors, the ungrounded conductors? Well, if we have more than one wiring system in the building, so maybe we've got a 480-volt system and a 122.08 volt system, At each panel board we have to indicate what the common colors are that we're using. This identification can be done by color coding, marking tape, tagging, uh, other means approved by the authority having jurisdiction. And the system identification has to be permanently posted at each feeder panel board or feeder distribution equipment. And so at this point it would be good to kind of see what industry does. Very few of the colors that we use and a day-to-day basis are actually spec'd by the code. We talked about orange. The high leg must be marked orange. But strangely enough, it's not just reserved for the high leg. If we want to use orange in other systems, we're free to do so. We talked about white and gray. Those are for the ground dead conductor. And we talked about green and green with a yellow stripe for the grounding conductor. But then how do we identify other systems? So, if you need a visual for this, if you have an Uglies book, uh, there on page 13, I believe it is, 13 and 14, you have the standard color systems and the standard wiring diagrams for transformer systems that are common in the United States. So, for 120 to 40 volt, single phase, if we were to color things, we would typically go with black and red for the ungrounded conductors, and white for the grounded or neutral conductor. If we have 12208 three three-phase, we typically will choose black, red, and blue for the hot conductors, and white for the grounded or neutral conductor. If we have 12240 three-phase, now this is a delta-connected system, we would typically have black, orange, blue, and here the orange is the high leg, So black, orange, blue, and then white as our grounded or neutral conductor. 277, 480 volt, three phase. Most often color here in the Pacific Northwest that I see is brown, orange, and yellow. B-O-Y. With a gray neutral. Now some parts of the U.S. have encountered a different color code. And it's brown, purple, yellow with a gray neutral. And the justification is that well because orange is often used for a high leg here we would be confused and so in uh, in some parts of the states brown purple yellow with a gray neutral is common but uh, uh, most of the textbooks will probably use brown orange yellow with a gray neutral so those are the standard colors for the standard wiring systems are there other wiring systems certainly Perhaps you have a lot of uh, Japanese equipment, and you might have a specific system for them. It's 200 volts, Y-connected. And choose what color system suits you in your particular facility. The code is not very specific about other systems. So, in summary, we could say the following. Service conductors supply power to service equipment. And then we have an overcurrent device, fuses or breakers. If we've got that main breaker and then we run down to a subpanel that's maybe, uh, you know, several feet away, maybe 100 feet away, that's a feeder. Feeders are run from service equipment to panel boards or subpanels. These feeders are the in-between circuits that occupy that space and power distribution. They're a very useful tool. Well, that wraps it up for this short but important article. Thank you for listening. The next episode will be a special podcast. It's going to be dedicated to the most important 2020 code changes. I'm not sure how many of these we'll cover just yet, But here in Washington State, we're about six months away from implementing the 2020 code. And a good number of other states are are in that same time frame. So it's time we start looking at some of these changes. My focus will not be so much on stuff that is being shuffled around in the codebook. For example, Article 310 got completely reorganized. Rather, I want to focus on the handful of things that will really have a cost impact or changes in how we do things in the upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. Now, if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.